Amen. Happy Father's Day again. God bless the fathers in the house. We're glad you're here. Amen. Y'all move out of your seat, go somewhere, hug somebody, high five them, greet them, welcome them if they're a visitor. If you don't know them, introduce yourself to them. Amen. I'm going to let you be seated this morning. God bless you. Let me encourage you uh, to sign up with, with the uh, financial class. Uh, Dave, thank you for, for doing that. Uh, he has such a heart to help people in, the, in stewardship and in finances and, and uh, trained and certified in it as well. So, man, we, we appreciate you uh, for doing that. And... Uh, that's what we decided to do this. You guys are already coming on Sunday morning, so just come a little early. You don't have to, you don't have to come twice. Just keep, you're coming anyway, right? Just come a little early, and, uh, and you'll enjoy that, and you'll be blessed by it. John chapter 17, verses 25 and 26, if you'll stand and just allow us to, to read these two verses, and then we'll let you be seated. You know, I love Father's Day. I love it because it gives me even a great excuse to talk about our Heavenly Father. Amen. I didn't tell them what songs to sing. Y'all did pretty good lining up with this today. Thank you, Jeannie, for that. And uh, I want to talk to you about discovering the fatherly God. And a lot of people have never done that. They've, they don't know anything uh, about God. And this is what Jesus is addressing in John 17. This is his last high priestly prayer on earth, and this is two verses of it. He says, O righteous Father, the world has not known you. And I would say that's true even today. Uh, the world truly has not known the Father. And I'd go so far to say that a lot of the church has not known the Father and still doesn't know who the Father really is. But Jesus says, but I have known you. So in other words, Jesus knows the Father. If you're going to know the Father, you're going to get that revelation through Jesus. And it says, these have known that you sent me, talking about his disciples. And he says, I have declared to them your name. In other words, the name of God, the names of God gives us revelation of who God is. And I love the way Jesus said that. He said, I have declared your name to them, but then he says, and I will declare it. God's going to keep doing that. And why does he want to declare the name of God to us? The answer is in that verse. He says, so that the love, notice this, now this is mind-blowing if you get it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That's the Trinity. That's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the relationship that they have uh, one with another. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament epistles, 
One thing that he repeated, and he uses this phrase, and this phrase is found literally over a hundred times in the New Testament. And it says, it, Paul begins almost every epistle, he begins with this phrase at some point. Uh, Ephesians 1 and 2, and I'm going to stay in Ephesians chapter 1 for a little bit in a moment. But in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, this phrase is what Paul does over and over. He says, grace to you. What's the name of this church? All right, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He he's always identifies it and, and declares that God is our Father and that Jesus Christ is his Son. Amen? Uh, you may be seated. Now, this is not going to take me long this morning because I want you to get this one big deal, this, this, this thought that our view of God has, has got to start with Father. Now, all throughout the, New, the Old Testament, no one ever referred to God as Father. Nobody, I mean, Abraham got a glimpse of who God was. Jacob did. He wrestled with, with the pre-incarnated Christ. All these prophets, they had glimpses of who God was or his attributes or his nature, uh, his characteristics, but nobody in the Old Covenant ever saw God or knew God or referred to God as Father. That revelation was specific uh, to Jesus Christ. Jesus came to show us the Father. And, and so our, if your view of God does not start with the revelation that God is your Father, then you're going to have a skewed view of God from that point forward. You're, you're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. And that's why I entitled this Discovering the Fatherly uh, God because I want you to know that, that all of God's ways, listen to me now, all of God's ways are fatherly. And that is a real word, by the way, okay? You can look it up. And so all of God's ways, in other words, father is, is not God's day job and then he goes back to being creator, he goes back to being a ruler, or, you know, none of that. All of God's, every interaction, everything about God, all that God does. In other words, God created as a father. Amen. Everything that God's ever done, he done uh, as a father. So all of God's ways, and God's dealing with us, God's dealing with creation, God's dealing with man, all of that is fatherly. And if you don't view it like that, you're, you're going to be off on your view of God and understanding of who, who God is. And, and so... Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians, he, he brings this to bear in such, a, in such a powerful way. And in verse 4, I want you to notice something. And, and he says, just as he chose us in him, when? Before what? Before the foundation of the world. That's, that's before the world was. God had already chose us in him. Now, you need to let that sink in a minute because I'm going to make a statement in a minute, but you need to see that that's in the Bible because this is not how most of the church views God, and this is not where most of the church starts with their revelation or understanding of who God is. But God it says here that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before there was an earth. So how many knows that predates Adam and Eve falling into sin? Okay? If God chose you before the foundation of the world, God, I've told you this over and over, God doesn't have plan B's. He just has a plan A that he's been working all, all the time. 
All right, so God chose us before the foundation of the world that what? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Not that we should achieve holiness by things that we do or don't do. Holiness, the Bible says in the New Testament, is a gift. We are created, Ephesians says in the fourth chapter, we're created in true righteousness and holiness. When does that happen? When you get born again. The, the righteousness of God is not yours. It's not mine. Whose is it? It's Jesus's. You are the righteousness of God where? In Christ Jesus. So the righteousness that me and you are gifted with when you get born again is the righteousness of God. It's not yours. It's not something that you achieved. It's not something that you obtained. It's not something you produced. Man's righteousness, the Bible says, is what? It's a waste. It's filthy rags. It's useless. It, it can't present yourself right before God. But, so the righteousness that you have has been gifted to you, the holiness that you have. And what, you say, well, if we've been gifted holiness, why does the Bible in a few places in the New Testament says be holy? Because God's telling you to be true to who you are. You are righteous, so be righteous. Live, live like God's made you to be. He, where, where did that occur at? In your spirit. What part of you got born again? Your spirit did. Your flesh didn't get born again. Whatever size you was before you got saved, you were still the same size after you got saved. That may be good or bad for you, depending on how you look at it. Your brain didn't get saved. <clears throat> Thank y'all. I'll take a drink while y'all think about that. Your brain didn't get saved. You didn't come up from being saved, and all of a sudden you're smart. I don't mean that offensive. I'm just saying whatever your intellectual standard was prior to salvation, you're still the same person. You didn't get saved and come out with a Ph.D., right? So what I'm saying is your mind, that's your mind. People don't understand this. Your mind is part of your soul. You are triune. You and I are triune just like God is one God, but yet God is, is, is three in one, the Trinity, Okay, and don't try to waste a lot of time. I mean, the trend, this is so important. It's so central to our understanding because if you, don't un, if you don't grasp hold of the Trinity, then you miss the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you miss that, you can't enter into what you don't see. Am I making any sense to you? And I told a lot of people, get all, you know, and I said, they said, well, how can three things, you know, be one and yet seemingly a little bit different? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a ton of examples. With, with me, I'm, you know, I'm a father. I, in other words, I'm one person, but I'm a father. I'm not a father to my wife. I'm a father to my children. So they relate to me as father, and they call me father. She don't call me father. She calls me husband, which is another name for Lord. No, no. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just seeing if you're listening. But so to her, when she sees me, she doesn't see her father. Yet I'm still the same person. So my kids, when they look at me, they see a father. When she looks at me, she, she sees her husband. When my grandchildren look at me, they see their puppy. It's different. But yet I'm still just one person. So God is one God, but he's manifest in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus did not come into existence, so to speak, at Bethlehem. Jesus has always been. He was not known in heaven as Jesus. He was known as the Word. It was the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. John 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, and that Word became 
flesh. It, in other words, the word there, it means it manifested. It, it became visible. God's all, Jesus has always been. The Bible says all things created were made by him and for him and through him. And everything that you see that is made, that was created by Jesus, by the word. By the word. And, and it's hard, it's just hard. Don't try to put your brain on it. Put your heart on it. How can three things be one? You ever seen an egg? You know, you can take an egg and you can crack it and you can lay the shell here. You can take the yolk of the egg and the egg white and you can separate all three on the table. Am I true? Right. And, 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 and they, doesn't, they don't look the same. But they're still egg. It's called egg to shell, egg to yolk, egg to white. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You can't look at one of those and say that's not an egg. It is an egg. But it's distinct. But yet it's the same. It has to have all three to, to exist and even to be an egg. Look at there. That's, made you, that's what's worth the drive. Your breakfast will mean more to you in the morning. All right? And so... It's like what I what I said last Sunday, and last Sunday, you know, I, I love it when when all of a sudden, not just me, but all of the hair on our arms and on the back of our necks begin to stand up, tingle. You, some of you call it Holy Ghost goosebumps or whatever, but in other words, that's your physical body, your human body, reacting to the manifested presence of the Holy Spirit. And God does that often, almost every Sunday. There will be at some point, it's not, I don't, I, I can't make anything happen. But last Sunday I gave an example. And when I did, God's presence manifested strongly. Just for a few moments, a few seconds really. I identified it. I said, the reason I do that sometimes is to draw attention to it. Because you may be sitting here and that's not happened to you before. And I want to tell you that you sense the presence of God. If you're saved or lost, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So if you're sitting here and you've never even put your faith in Jesus, you still feel his presence. And God's not trying to birth you on feeling, and neither am I trying to train you that you need to be like a little feely-feely Christian. But what I'm trying to tell you is that we serve a God that is real and, can, and he's tangible. He can, he can be experienced in that way. And I love that, but I, what I do is I pay attention to when did the presence of God manifest. See, we're not, try, we're not trying to get God. We're not moving from the, from the absence of God to try to, you know, one day over yonder in the glory land, by and by, pie in the sky. No, God's here in now present with us and he's not only present with us he's present in us but God's manifested presence is not always visible to people it's not always uh they, they don't they don't recognize it now we know that God's present everywhere we, we didn't come to church to visit God like he lives in this building we, we, we got better sense than that. We know better than that. There are some people that kind of get all that confused. The New Testament says clearly God does not occupy tabernacles made with hands. He doesn't dwell in wood and, and stone and brick and mortar. And we don't leave God here. And that's why it's a dumb prayer for anybody to be called on to give the benediction and pray this prayer. Oh, Father, we ask you that you go with us from this place. How many heard people pray that prayer? It is a stupid prayer. It is a non-biblical, faithless blasphemous not intentionally but from ignorance prayer because I don't want you praying that ignorant prayer in front of my grandchildren 
or either anybody in here. Because you can, they can conclude from that prayer that God lives here and that you're asking him to go with us from this place, which is to call God a liar. Did you not know that the Bible says God said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you? So why are you asking him not to be a liar? Why are you praying a prayer to ask God to go with you? Why do you ask God to bless you when he already has? I can start in chapter 1 here of Ephesians and it says a few verses up that he has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. How many did he leave out? To, to assume that he's left any out is to assume he's a liar. I spent hours this week talking to some, a believer trying to convince them that they already have something that they're desperately seeking to get. I talk about it a lot around here. There's things we pray for. I used to spend decades praying for stuff that I didn't know that really it was part of the package. Do you know when you buy a new car, you don't have to sit down in the parking lot after you walk to your new car and get on your knees and pray for a steering wheel? You don't have to pray for a steering wheel. It comes with the car. Now, how many knows you can drive and not use it? It's not going to go good, but you can do it. It'll crank up, won't it? You can put it in gear. Can't you mash the gas pedal? Never touch the steering wheel, right? I'm trying to make a point here. It's up to you to decide to put your hands on it and engage and use it. It was given to you by the manufacturer of the car. Now, if you choose not to use it, it's not going to be fun for you. And you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt the car, and you're going to probably maybe hurt other people or property, right? right? Whose fault is that? Yours. Why? You didn't use what was given to you. Now, as, as dumb as an example as that may sound to you in the natural, in the spirit, when you got born again, were you not, according to the New Testament, given the Holy Spirit? You were given the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that if you don't have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, you're none of His. You're not saved. To be born again is to have His Spirit, His life in you. So you have the Holy Spirit. Do, do, do you have a different Holy Spirit than Jesus has? So the same Spirit that Jesus operated on when He walked the earth is the same Holy Spirit you're telling me that you have. Right. Do kids get a kindergarten Holy Spirit? Do we have adult Holy Spirit? Is there a Baptist Holy Spirit? Is there a Pentecostal Holy Spirit? Is there a Catholic Holy Spirit? No, there's just the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Acts 5 clears that up. He, he, when they said you've lied to the Holy Spirit, the next few verses, he said, you, Peter said you lied to God. Because when you, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. He's not a bird. He's not tongues. He's not gifts. The Holy Spirit is God. So if you have the Holy Spirit, follow me now, then you would have the fruit of the Spirit. How can you have fruit if you don't have the Holy Spirit? But if you have the Spirit, then you have the fruit of the Spirit. 
It is fruit. If you have an apple tree, you don't have to get on your knees in front of the apple tree and pray for apples. It's part of the fruit. The apple's going to produce because the root is apple. You have the fruit of the Spirit as a Christian. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians clears it up. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, kindness, temperance, self-control, what I mean, faith. You have it. You cannot have the Holy Spirit and have a smorgasbord. Oh, I take a little bit of this, and I don't want any of that because I don't like that. And then I have a whole lot of mm -mm, this ain't this ain't this ain't Shawnee's. This ain't a smor mm -mm. This ain't Mama's table or your Mama's table. You get it all. Now it's up to you if you don't acknowledge it and you don't avail yourself of the privilege of it. So, as a believer. If you're seeking peace and praying for peace, you'll never get it because you already have it. So when you as a believer get on your knees and you pray and ask God to give you peace, you're saying that God didn't give you what he said he did. You're literally calling God a liar. If you'll notice in your life when you've done that, you, you didn't get an answer. And you didn't feel different after you prayed it. Because God can't give you again what he already gave you. That would be as dumb as sitting in the car crying and praying that the car dealer would give you a steering wheel when you're looking at it. The car dealer's not going to bring you another steering wheel. You already have it. He's going to say use what you, what's been provided for you. The peace of God is not something you get at Walgreens. Prayer is not you writing a prescription. God's going to send it into the pharmacist and you go down there and get it filled. And when you get all stressed out, you swallow a couple of them, chase it with some water, and now i got peace. Peace is part of the package. The peace of God surpasses understanding. Here's the key. If you want the peace of God that surpasses understanding, stop trying to understand. And just drank the peace. When you set your mind to try to understand everything, why this happened, why this didn't happen, or this happened and this has made me non-peaceful, or I feel stressed out, or I can't take it anymore, whatever verbiage you want to put to that, but that still doesn't negate the truth that you have the peace of God on the inside of you. That peace is where? It's in your spirit. It's not in your brain necessarily, because the Bible tells you that you've got to do something with your brain. It, it, it says in, in Philippians that, that think on these things. If there's anything that's true, if there's anything that's holy, if anything of, of virtue, if anything, and he names all these encouraging things. He said, think on these things. That means if he tells you to think on these things, there's other things that you're not to think on. But he said, if you think on these things, then listen to what the next verse says. It says, the peace of God will guard, garrison your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. See, but it's going to require you to do some things. You're going to probably need to cut the news off, be honest with you. Just switch it off. If you come to my house and stop in front of my house and take out your garbage can and shake your trash on my lawn, I'm not going to allow that. 
You can't dump your garbage in my yard. In my yard. I'm not going to allow it. Do I have some say? Sure. I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to allow garbage to be dumped in on me. You can call it news. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But I decide if it's garbage because if it smells and it's rotten and it don't help me, it's trash. I'm not listening to it. You may not like that, but that's, I'm just saying what I've had to make some decisions years ago. So I have found myself more peaceful, not because I didn't have it, but I just stopped allowing the things that distracted me from the peace that's on the inside of me. How you know you got real peace is you can sleep at night instead of having to try to drown yourself with chemicals and things to get peace. Well, I'm trying to get peace. Well, how's that been working out for you? How many years have you been at it? If you could find it, don't you think you'd have found it by now? If you could smoke it, drink it, snort it, inject it, sex it, I mean, to get the peace, don't you think you'd be done gotten it by now? It's been hours talking with a person. It just, just breaks my heart, pursuing peace. I, t I said to this person, I said, you can live your whole life like this. And you can spend your decades pursuing what you already have. But you don't believe you have it. This person has told me, oh, no, if I can just have one moment of peace. Ted Turner, you ever heard of that guy? Multi-gazillionaire. Started a TBS station in Atlanta and network. And he's the guy that invented 24-hour news stations. I don't know if that was a good lick or not, but it's better when it was at 6 and 10 or 11 and 9. <laughs> Get a little bit and go to bed, huh? But he, he was quoted in, in the Atlanta Constitution. He would give all of his money for one moment of peace. I could say keep your money and I can tell you where you get it. What's, what's one of the names of Jesus? Prince of. How can you have the Prince of Peace and not have peace? You explain that to me. How can you have the Holy Spirit, which is a, is, a, is a result of you being born again, and not have the fruit of the Spirit? So the first thing is to know what you have, what you've been given. It's not in heaven. You don't have to get God to UPS it. God didn't give one Christian peace, and then another Christian, he's not giving them peace. Everybody gets the same because everybody gets his son. Come on, somebody. And so everybody gets saying, the Bible says in Colossians that you have received the fullness of the Godhead bodily in Christ Jesus. You already have it. I sure wish I'd have known this decades ago. It would have changed my preaching, but more than, more than that, it would have changed my living. So what would I do? You've heard me say this many times. I would pray for things that I had. What example? I would pray for the anointing. I would fast for the anointing. I wouldn't hardly go to the pulpit unless I had skipped some meals because I would be praying and asking God to anoint me to preach. I didn't know really how the anointing came. I didn't know when it came, but I sure knew when it wasn't there, it seemed like. I saw the anointing more like in a bucket in heaven, five-gallon bucket full of anointing oil, and that God would lean over, as they say, the balcony of heaven, and say, Dale's down there preaching today. Let's just pour it out on him. And God would pour it on me, and then the anointing would come, and it would just be a fired-up service. Man, the anointing was there today, wasn't it? 
next Sunday you come and preach theologically, even a better sermon than that, and it's like somebody slid a casket up front. And you go, what's going on today? I guess I wasn't anointed. Some people don't even know the anointing if they saw it. Just because you scream and holler doesn't mean you're anointed. And just because you're quiet doesn't mean you're anointed or not anointed. I've been parts of churches that were one of the greatest pastors I ever had really got run off from our church. I don't know the nice way of saying it because they said he wasn't anointed. Because he didn't scream and throw sweat on the first three rows and spit on everybody. But some people, they, you know, some of these folk, they hollering and, you know, whooping and doing all that. I can do all that too. I can do that. Used to do it. I used to go to the revivals and drink lemon juice just trying to be stripping my vocal cords because I was raised in a philosophy that the more you scream, the better it is. Notice I don't do that anymore. And I'm still anointed. Nobody in the New Testament, no apostle, no one ever prayed for the anointing. Take that one. No apostle prayed. No, Paul didn't pray for, nobody prayed for the anointing. Three times it tells you in three different verses, Paul said, for the anointing you have received. You have the anointing. It comes as a revelation. Once you realize you have it, it makes your life so much peaceful. You don't strive. You don't even waste any prayer time on it. So how do I pray like today before I come? Father, thank you for the anointing that you have given me. And as I stand today to minister the word of God, I thank you that I am anointed because the anointed one indwells me. That's what Christ, the word Christ means the anointed one. How can I not be anointed if I have the anointed one in me? All I pray is, Father, help me, Dale, to yield to that anointed one that indwells me. I literally pray that today. Father, I pray that the gifts of the Holy Spirit will operate according to your will. Father, if there's one person in the service today that so desperately needs a prophetic word, they need to be encouraged, to be comforted, or to build up. Identify them to me. You feel that presence now? And Father, let me know things that I would have no way of knowing except by the Spirit. So that their faith may rest in you and that they may experience your love and know how much you love them. That's how I pray. So I don't pray for the mind of Christ anymore. I used to. Oh, God, we just ask you to give us the mind of Christ. The Bible, nobody ever prayed that in the New Testament. Nobody prayed it in the Old either. The Apostle Paul said, for we have the mind of Christ. When did I get the mind of Christ? When you got born again. Do you know you have two minds? That's why the Bible warns you not to be double-minded. It says if you are double-minded, you are unstable in how many of your ways? All of them. And it says don't let that person that's double-minded think because they're like a person that's tossed by the waves of the sea and they're always being knocked over here and knocked over there and they don't know which mind to believe. But the New Testament says let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. For you've been given the mind of Christ. So it's up to you. It'd be like you've been given two computers with two very different Hard drives that contain very different information. But you've been given both of them and it's up to you to use whichever one you will. 
Now, one of them, you can't change the information. It's permanently been locked in. The other one is at your disposal to add to it or delete from it. That's your natural mind, renewed mind. Romans 12 and 1 tells believers, Paul said, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice which your body is holy and acceptable unto God. And that's your reasonable service. That's your spiritual act of worship. But he says in verse 2, be ye not conformed. Don't be conformed. The word conformed is made up of two words, con-formed. Don't be conned. Don't let this world and the thinking of the world and the system of the world do a con job on your mind, which it already has. By the time you reach adulthood, you've been conned. You've been told a lie about who Papa is, what he does, how he reacts. You've been lied to, and I was lied to, about the Father. So you've, But Paul said, don't allow that. Do not be conformed. The word translated in English conformed is the Greek word that means schematics. It's interesting. The word schematics, is, is that tells you how something operates. Now, he says, do not be conformed. Don't let your mind be conformed to the image of this world, but be ye transformed. That's a powerful word. That's the word, Greek word, that's metamorphosis. Transformed is not the exchange of information. It's a creation of something totally different. Metamorphosis is, he said, be, if you want to really change. Now, see, the Christian logic in America is go to the Christian bookstore and, and, and get you a book on 10 principles to a great marriage. And you take 10 external rules and regulations and you try to apply them externally to your life and you think if you do that, you're going to have a better marriage. Your problem in your marriage is not what you're doing externally, it's who you are internally. It's, 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 it's what's coming out of your mind. It's what's coming out of your soul. Now, you're a Christian. I'm not saying you're, you're not a Christian, but your spirit is born again. But your mind, my mind needs renewing. In other words, he says that, that don't be conformed to the, to, the, to the spirit of this world, to the image of this world, to the schematics of this world. But be ye, be you, transformed, metamorphosis. Be ye transformed by the word of God, the, the, how does true transformation, so the picture of metamorphosis, or everybody normally thinks of this, it is the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. I told you people that wrote, you know, wrote me and said, you know, do you believe a Christian can lose their salvation? I said, only if you can ever show me a caterpillar that become a butterfly that turns back into a caterpillar. Then I believe it. You can't. You've been changed. But if you want the change to happen in your life, in your marriage, in your finances, in how we live this thing out, it's going to come by the transforming of your mind. Paul said the reason people can't get saved, it didn't say the God of the world blinded their eyes. It says the God of this world, Paul said, has blinded the minds of people so they cannot believe. Your mind has been messed with by religion. And this is how it starts. It starts with a lie and a premise that there is separation between God and his creation, which is us, mankind. You and I were raised on this philosophy, this thought. It was called theology, but it was a lie that we were separated from God. See, 
this, this with God is not an afterthought. It's not a plan B. Let me just read this because I'm just to make a statement. Ephesians 1 and 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before Him in love. Verse 5, and this is also before, this is, this is this the thought. He's saying, notice at the end there's a comma, not a period. At the end of verse 4 there's a comma. He's still saying that God chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be holy without blame. He also chose us, verse 5, to be adopted. When? When did God choose to adopt us as sons and daughters before the foundation of the world? Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his what? Of his will. And to the praise of the glory of his what? Grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus. So listen to this statement. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, listen to me, the fall in the garden is not what set God's agenda concerning us. That right there statement is revelatory, mind-boggling, and against the traditional view of Christianity that most of us were raised under. We were taught that God put Adam and Eve in the garden. You know, God's over here doing something else, turns around, they've sinned. He's got to come up with a plan now to redeem man. That's not what the Bible says. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The fall of man in the garden and sin did not set God's agenda. God's agenda was in place and God was pursuing his agenda before the foundation of the world. So what did the fall do, Pastor Dale? It just means that, that, that it's going to cost God now much more to accomplish his agenda. It's going to be bloody, and his son's going to suffer. But God is still, listen, he's still pursuing his agenda that was his agenda before the foundation of the world, which was before there was an earth, and before there was an Adam, and before there was an Eve, and before there was a devil, and before there was a sin. And what was that agenda? To adopt us as sons and daughters into his family. That was God's agenda before there was an Adam and Eve. And so he chose us in him before the fall, before Adam and Eve did what they did. And I will tell you, that's not the view that most people view it. So they start with a separatist view of God. This is how they preach it. They preach it like this. They say, you know, that God's so holy he can't look at sin. Listen to me. Now, I know you think that you know something that I don't know, and I'm not trying to be a smarty britches. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Your brain's been messed with. There's not, there's not one verse in the entirety of the Bible that ever says that God separated himself from man because of sin. Not one. There's only one verse in the entirety of the Old Covenant, and it's in Isaiah 59. And Isaiah says to the, to the Jews, to, to the Israelites, he says that you have allowed your iniquities to separate you from, from God. He said your iniquities have separated you from God. It never says God separated from them because of their iniquities, which is another word for sin. We were told that God can't look at sin, but yet we see a different, very different picture in the garden. When Adam and Eve sin, I've told you this, I won't belabor the point, but does God still show up? Yes, 
He does. If you believe that separate thought that has been preached and taught, if you believe that and you say that was true, then when Adam and Eve sinned, God should have never came to the planet again because he was too holy. He couldn't look at them because they were sinners. But does God look at them? Yes. Does God come and walk with them again? Yes. Does God talk to them? Yes. Because religion is a lie. So God comes just like he always does. He comes in the cool of the evening. He comes to commune with them, to fellowship with them. And he comes to turn dirt into glory. He comes to turn dirt into glory. And when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were dirt. Not dirty, not sinners, but they were made from the dust of the earth. And God's intention has always been to adopt them and to turn that dust into glory. And to adopt them as his own children, sons and daughters. And then they sinned and it's going to make the adoption more costly to God. But God's agenda is straight ahead like it's always been. There is no separate theory no matter what has been preached to us. It's a lie. The other way they perpetuate it is they come over into the cross and they say that God turned his back on Jesus when he hung on the cross. That God forsook him. All that's lies. How can God forsake him if Jesus is God? And how can 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, 17, 18, and 19 that said God was in Christ when Jesus hung on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the sin of the world unto himself, not imputing, not keeping a record of men's trespasses against them. So you explain to me how that God was in Christ and yet turned his back on him. Well, didn't he say, yes, he said, Father, why has thou forsaken me? But he said that because he's quoting directly and specifically out of the 22nd Psalm, which Psalm 23, 22, 23, and 24 are a trilogy of messianic psalms recorded in Scripture prophetically by David who is seeing this thing called crucifixion. By the way, it had not even been invented yet when David said those things. And yet he is quoting that so those Jewish people that are crucifying him who knew that psalm would know that he is fulfilling messianic prophecy. He didn't feel like God forsake. In fact, if you read the 22nd Psalm, it says in the psalm that, he, that, that the one who would be crucified that would give his life would, knew that the, his father would not forsake him as he accomplished the redemption of man. But everybody, they, they, they start with this lie that there's a separation. Paul tried to clear it up for us in Romans 8. He said, there's nothing able to separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You can't do it. You can't do it. And yet, this is why, and what, I, what did I say last Sunday that caused God's presence to manifest? This is what I said. I, I tried to give this example. Now, to me, if you're going to enter into and enjoy and live this life called Christianity out, you're going to have to enter into the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, when you begin to see through the revelation of the Spirit, when you read, the, particularly the book of John, when you read that and you see the oneness is with Jesus, he, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They said, show us the Father. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is not, there's, there's a diabolical lie that God is different than Jesus. God is Jesus. 
The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the invisible God. What all that Jesus did was put a face on God, a body that they could see. It's like I told you, you know, so here I am, this guy, this older guy, and, and I got a little, I got a lot of grandkids, but I, I'll just use Addie as an example. She's six, and she, she's, she's interacting with me. Now, kids are like their own species. I mean, really, so kids, they relate to one another. Kids typically are not fearful of one another. They'll walk up to kids they don't even know and start playing with them. They'll walk up. Well, I, I watched kids when we was on vacation a couple weeks ago at the beach, and, and kids just walked up, you know, and there was a little boy talking to Addie, and, you know, and, and so, we, you know, we were saying, hey, we had a little fella there. And she said, he walked up to me. <laughs> and I was like, I guess he did when he saw them little brown eyes. Sure he did. And he's trying to play and talk and, you know, and I'd watch, you know, my grandkids out there digging in the sand, making the sand, and I'd watch other kids kind of stand off for a minute, and then the next thing you know, they're standing right there, and the next thing you know, they're down there digging with them. They don't even know each other's name. But there's no fear there because they are the same species. But you don't see them doing that with adults. I didn't have any kids walk up to me sitting on the beach and wanted to, you know, talk and hang out and play and none of them. Nobody even came close because I'm a scary guy, I guess, right? But notice this. If me and Addie are playing and I'm tickling her and playing and giggling and, and we're just interacting, and another kid is off, they're scared of me. They don't know me. I'm a scary adult. I'm a different species. They, they're scared of me. But if they see someone of their same age, same species, another little kid, it's another little six-year-old, and they see how Addie's reacting with me and enjoying me and that I'm not fearful and mean and I'm not hurting her, and in fact, she's having a great time, then it, it causes that fear barrier of me to break down. And next thing you know, they come over, and, and because of what she and how she's reacting, then they enter into that relationship. I feel the Lord here. That's, that's God. And when you, there's several things that can happen. When you, when you see Jesus interacting with the Father, we, we thought he was scary. Isn't he the guy on Mount Sinai that speaks and it thunders and lightens and makes a lot of noise? I mean, he scared the daylights out of them Israelites. Remember when Moses brought, Moses brought them to church that Sunday? <laughs> you remember what they said after that service? They said, we don't ever want to go out there again. You remember? They said, you go out there and you talk to him and you come back and tell us what he said. But as for us, we're never going out there again. He's too scary. All that thunder and lightning and smoke and fire on mountains. Mm-mm. I ain't going to that. Mm-mm. I'm not going to be out there. They were scared and afraid of God. So what's God to do? How can he relate to his kids? How can he show them who he is and what he is? Watch Mani, great Chinese minister. He died in 1972, but in the 20th century he he was imprisoned and just horrible conditions. He wrote many books, just had a great insight to this. But he, but he made a statement one time in one of his books that I read years, many years ago. He said that he, he had this vision like he was, you know, he's a Chinese missionary. But the winter had been extremely severe and harsh. 
snow everywhere, food was hard to come by. And he noticed the birds that hung around the mission, uh, the mission, the, the, the mission uh, were dying, starvation, just dying, cold, star starving to death. And uh, he knew, you know, where they, was, where they could find food. And he would try to shoo them that way. And, and, and as soon as he would go out to where he would see the birds, they would fly off, of course. They're, they're terrified of him. He can't speak bird. So they don't, how do you communicate? And he said his heart was so broken. And he, he's like, how can I save these birds? How, I mean, there's food available for them. They just don't know where to go get it. And they're dying because lack of it. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll become a bird. And if I become a bird, then I can fly into the tree where all the birds are. And they won't be afraid of me anymore. And I can speak their language. And I can speak bird to them. And I can lead them to where the food is and they can be saved. He said, that didn't really happen. Yeah, it did. God became one of us. Because, see, God couldn't talk to us because we were scared. And he was trying to save us and show us where the food is. Show us where life is, real life. But every time he'd try to interact with us, we would run away. And there was all kind of lies circulated about the father and how mean he was and how he'd kill you. And, you know, and, and he don't really like you anyway. It, he don't really want you and you're just a piece of dirt. And, you know, you rebelled against him so he's mad at you and he won't talk to you and he won't answer your prayers and he won't bless you. And he really, you know, he detests you. Jonathan Edwards preached a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And on Wikipedia and Google, it's still reported by many to be the greatest sermon ever preached by any preacher ever. It is a horrible, blasphemous sermon. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, and if you read that, you read the sermon. You can go on and do it this afternoon if you got some time. You read it. He, he, he goes in there and, and it, he literally says in the sermon that God hates you. He said God sees you as a, he, and he uses the, that language that they use back. He said God abhors you. It means hates you. He sees you as a, as a spider ready to be crushed. You know, and he just he just vomits out all this all this hatred that God has, and this 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 he can't stand even. He actually says in his sermon that God can't even stand to behold you, can't even stand to look at you, and the fact that you breathe another breath is just a gift from a merciful God. And he said that you're being dangled over hell, and I mean, that's that's the greatest sermon ever preached. People still circulated on Facebook. It is a damnable, blasphemous lie against the nature and the character of the Father. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And there's so many people that preach and teach that God's angry. I like to say this a lot around here. Most of the world, like Jesus said when I started, they, know, they don't know God. They see God as the Godfather, not Father God. What does the Godfather do? Breaks a few legs every now and then, get people's attention. Drowns a few, kills a few. Oh, I'll just give you cancer, that'll teach you. That way you can get close to me. That's their view of God. God's like this loving bridegroom. He goes to his potential bride, you know, the sinner, and says, hey, I'd like to be your husband and you'll be my wife, the bride of Christ. We, you know, we, 
And, and if you, you accept my marriage proposal that you'll call salvation, but if you accept my marriage proposal, me and you will be happy. We'll live together forever, and I'll be the best husband you ever had. But I just want to say this now before you give me your answer on my proposal, my invitation. Now, if you don't accept my invitation to be my wife, then I'm going to throw you in a place called hell, and I'm going to torture you forever. Have a nice day, girl. Choose wisely. How would you do if you if a guy come up to you and you're a single woman and he says, I want to propose to you and I'll be the best husband you've ever been and I love you, girl, and I'll take care of you and I'll provide for you and you won't ever want for nothing. But, before you answer, if you tell me no, I'm going to get a hold of you, I'm going to chain you in my basement, I'm going to torture you every day of your life as long as you live. I'm your man, baby girl. Would you accept that? I mean, even, once you hear the latter part, would you? You want nothing to do with that? And you wonder why chairs are empty around here some, in every church. Because that's the God that you stuck out there. And that ain't him at all. See, it causes you to have to rethink what you thought you knew. Because all you heard was somebody regurgitating stuff that had been regurgitated on them, and it just keeps the sickness going. But when you get in the Word of God, and you see that God has never had anything but good intentions for you, and He's always wanted to adopt you and bring you in to sons and daughters, that's Father's Day. That's what it means to see, to see this Father in the light of who he truly is. And, and, and listen to this. This, this verse, and I'm, I'm closing with this. It says that God has accepted us. It says in verse 6, Ephesians uh, 1 and 6 again, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, by which he's made us accepted. Now, now this right here is such fanatically good news for those that do not want to play the acceptance game. Now, I want you to look at the first part of that verse. Let me ask you a question. Does it say... To the praise of the glory of your service and sacrifice. Uh, you don't say that at all, does it? It says that his acceptance of you is to the praise of the glory of his what? Of his grace. Now, how many knows that's wonderful? Could you just join me in saying that's wonderful? All right, but wait, it gets better. Look at the middle of the verse. It says, he made us accepted. Who made us accepted? He did. How did he do it? By his blood, by his sacrifice. Now, his acceptance is not something you ever have to strive for. You already have it. You know what that translates into? Relief, freedom. But wait, one last thing. There's more. Look at the final part of the verse. It says that we are accepted in the what? In the what? We could say in the who. Who is the beloved? Jesus. All right, now this is, this is talking about Jesus. So listen to me. God's acceptance comes to you on account of who? And you get to do what? You get to enter into that. And, and, and so, so you, that, that's, that's, what, that's what this whole life is, this Christianity. And, and that's why the incarnation, when I say the word incarnation, you know what that means? That means God the Spirit, God became a man. He, he, he encased himself in flesh. He, he took upon flesh. And, and, and God, 
Jesus was not scary. No, nobody ran from him when he walked down the street. By the way, regardless of what the artist painted, he did not glow around his head. He didn't have a halo. He, he was a regular-looking guy. He was a blue-collar worker. Uh, he, he, he wasn't a preacher. And in fact, according to, to the religion of the day, Judaism, he could never be a preacher because he wasn't born in the right tribe. You know, Israel had 12 tribes. And the only way you could be in the ministry is you had to be born a Levite of the tribe of Levi. Am I right? And to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. And if, you, if you're ever going to get into ministry, you've got to be a priest. And if you're going to be a priest, you've got to be born of the tribe of Levi. Jesus could not be in the ministry because he was not born of the tribe of Levi. What tribe was Jesus born out of? Judah. The kingly tribe. David was of the tribe of Judah. All right, so Jesus was never even in the running to be in the ministry. Can you see that God is screaming change here? This is going to be different. This is not going to be church as normal. And so at 30 years of age, Jesus hangs up the, the carpentry business, and he is baptized, and God audibly speaks and says, This is my beloved what? In whom I'm well pleased. Here's God pleased with Jesus, and he's never preached a sermon. He's never healed anybody. He's not done one miracle. He ain't raised the dead. He hadn't done anything because he could not do anything because he had not been endued with power from on high yet. I don't care what kind of jibber-jabber you heard. Jesus was not walking on the water as a baby while Mary's trying to bathe him. He was not bringing toys from across the room like the little girl on Bewitched. He wasn't doing none of that. He could not do any miracle. And my proof of that, if he could do a miracle, and if he could raise the dead, and if he could do any kind of healing, don't you think he would have healed his own daddy, Joseph? And sometimes between 12 years of age and 30, Joseph dies. And Jesus changes from being the son of a carpenter to the carpenter. And they buried his daddy. If you're going to do a miracle, pull it out now, buddy. We need one. Couldn't do nothing about it. I don't know if his daddy died of cancer and a slow disease that eat him away slowly or if a big log fell on him at the carpenter shop and crushed him instantly. I don't know what happened to Joseph, but he died. And Jesus is the oldest. He takes responsibility for his mom and his brothers and sisters. Right? If you're going to do a miracle, well, don't you think he would pull one out then? Couldn't do it. But once he got baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the body form as a dove at his baptism service. You see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all interacting in there in this miraculous moment. And Jesus is baptized with the power of God. And he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then starts the miracle ministry. And then the eye can do something. That's why Jesus said over and over, he said, I can't do anything except what I see the Father do. And he can't do anything except he's empowered by the Spirit. Jesus, did, listen to me, Jesus didn't do one miracle as God. You ever, you, ever, you ever heard that? Every miracle that Jesus did when he walked the earth, he did as a man full of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit who went about doing good. What's good look like? Healing all that were sick and oppressed of the devil. That's what Jesus did. You want to do the stuff that Jesus did? You're going to do it the same way he did it, by the Spirit. You're not going to do it in yourself. 
But I give the Lord, well, praise God, but we already know who the credit goes to. Hallelujah. We know it's not you. It's, it's by the Spirit. Now, stand to your feet. Listen to me. Let, me. let me wrap this up. Let me put a little bow on it. This is the Father's heart. God loves you. He's never been separated from you while you were yet a sinner. He loved you. Christ died for you. God has always been pursuing you. You know, I grew up with somebody writing a book called God Chasers as if God is aloof and hiding from us and we've got to chase him. What a joke. What a joke to make God like he's hiding from you and you've got to chase him to get him to even interact with you. It sold millions of copies. Brother got rich off a lie. You ain't chasing God. God's been chasing you before the foundation of the world. God's talked to you. How many nights has he talked to you when you was lost laying on your pillow at night? <laughs> All those God's been one pursuing you. God has always pursued you. He's always reached for you. He, you. Why? Because God's never been separated from you. God has always been there. And if you start with that separate theology, then, but if what I've said today is true, then it, 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 it forces you and I to rethink what we thought we knew about him. If you're ever going to get an image of God, listen to me, any understanding that you have of God, listen to me, anything you, listen, anything you think you know about the Father God, if you cannot prove it in the life of Jesus when he walked the earth, you call it into question. I won't have me, I told you people, what about Job? What, 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 I'm not a disciple of Job. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm not, you're not going to drag me to old, inferior, I didn't say not true, inferior revelations of who God is from the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and try to and state your case based on that. And, and, call, and try to act like we're supposed to ignore the revelation of the Father that Jesus brought us. Jesus is God. Jesus is good theology. Jesus is the revelation of who God is and how Jesus does. How many people did Jesus give sickness to when he walked the earth? None. How many storms did Jesus send to whoop up on people and drown towns? None. How many people that came to Jesus that was sick and, and, and asked for healing did he send home sick? None. You want to keep playing this game? None. So don't try to make God out to be that God because that's not who he is. If you can't see it in Jesus, it ain't true. It, it ain't true. And when you see God like this, it rewires your thinking. That's what the word repent means, think differently. And it is a mind-blowing metanoia, Greek word, think differently about God. And when you think differently about God, then you start to think differently about yourself. And when you start thinking differently about yourself, it starts causing you to think differently about people, saved or lost. And out of your belly starts flowing that living water. And, and, and you're not poisoning your marriage, you're blessing your marriage. You're not poisoning relationships and destroying them. You're, 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 you're providing living water for them. Because it's flowing out of you because of who's in you. Can somebody say Amen. Was that too deep for you? Y'all act like I was trying to teach calculus today or something. God's never been separated from you. 
Don't ever believe that. Can't you look back when you were even lost as a goose, as they say in a snowstorm, and then you see God's hand in your life. Ain't he always been there? He's going to always be there. Amen? Bow your head. Father, thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for our natural fathers, but oh, Father, let us all come to the revelation of our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the Father, for demonstrating the Father, and for revealing the relationship that you have with the Father, the Spirit, the Son, all interacting, loving one another. Father, help us to enter into that. Thank you for becoming one of us to save us, to save us from the darkness. Thank you for leading us and showing us where life is. Thank you for coming, Jesus, and becoming one of us so that we wouldn't be afraid and we would listen to you. I praise you for that. I pray today that you would help us all to hear this message to believe in you, to believe in your goodness that leads men to think differently, to repent, and to see you differently than religion has ever portrayed you to be. We ask that in the name of your beloved, your son, our savior, Jesus the Christ. Somebody said amen. amen. God bless you. Happy Father's Day. We love you guys. Amen.